Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word, and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. everything right for a long time, but then you do one thing wrong, and that can stick with you forever. Many of you have probably heard of Jim Marshall. He played 20 seasons in the NFL, and he was regarded as one of the finer defensive linemen of his era, but there is one infamous play that everyone associates with his name. See, in 1964, Marshall was playing for the Minnesota Vikings against the San Francisco 49ers. And the running back for the 49ers, Billy Kilmer, fumbled the ball. Marshall scooped up the loose ball, and he ran 66 yards to the end zone, and in celebration, threw the ball out the back of the end zone. What he didn't realize was he'd gotten disoriented, and he ran the ball into the wrong end zone. So instead of scoring six points for his team, he scored a safety for the 49ers. And after the game, Marshall stated, my first inkling that something was wrong was when a 49er player came and gave me a hug in the end zone. You know, a lot of times it's, it's important to react quickly, but sometimes, most of the time probably, it's best to make sure before you react that you're reacting in the right way, that you're heading in the right direction. And our passage this morning from Joshua chapter 5, it's the last passage of the book in the preparation stages. Next week when we get into Joshua 6, we'll see the first major battle, the one that everyone associates with Joshua, the Battle of Jericho. But that's the first in the, in the conquering of the land. This one today is the first or the last in the preparing stage. Israel has recognized at this point Joshua to be their human leader. Moses has passed on. Joshua is the new leader. Everybody recognized that. He sent spies into Jericho. We looked into that and heard their report of what happened. He led the people to go to the Jordan River. And when the priests put their feet in the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the waters, it says, they heaped up and the people of Israel were able to cross on dry land. Joshua led the people then to set up a memorial. And we looked at that last week. So it looks like they are prepared to press ahead, to go into battle, but first they need to make sure that they are heading in the right direction. Now we're going to look at this passage this morning and see what it takes, what it means 
to be the people of God and what we should do as we seek to follow him. But before we jump into the passage, would you bow with me? Great Father, you have given us your holy scriptures. They were written for our learning. Grant us that we may not only hear these words, but as we read them, that we would mark them, that we would learn them, that we would inwardly digest them. Lord, may they comfort us, may they challenge us. By your Spirit, may we embrace them and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Lord and Savior, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please join me in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 9. Now it came about that all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel, until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'araloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Why did they perish? Because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were not circumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now they had finished circumcising all the nation. They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. As people of God, Israel, and by extension us, are people who need to wear the right patch. We'll talk more about what exactly I mean by that in a minute. But it seemed like the perfect time to attack. Reports of God's supernatural work in opening a crossing at the Jordan River for all the Israelite people had struck all the people of the land. The author tells us that the Amorite and the Canaanite kings were so afraid that the literal interpretation is their hearts melted. As those most powerful nations, the, the Amorites and the Canaanites serve here as a representation for all the people of the land. The, the miracle of Jordan had accomplished what it had set out to do, or one of the purposes that it had set out to do, that all the people would know that the Lord's hand is mighty. Now, if you look back to verse 24 of chapter 4, 
That was one of the purposes, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And then the second purpose we saw last week, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So it's fulfilled one of its purposes. Israel's enemies were so afraid that they didn't even have a fighting spirit in them. So from a human standpoint, it would have been the perfect time to attack, but God had other plans. You see, there was a problem. Although God had not ceased to provide for Israel through their time in the promised land, or in the wilderness rather, the people had not taken yet the sign of the covenant. Back in Genesis, Abraham had entered into a covenant with the Lord. And the Lord gave to him this as a sign that he and all that are males in his family should be circumcised. And this had been passed down for generations. But while the people were in Egypt, Israel had stopped having this practice. Now, I'm sure there were some that continued it, but for the whole, they had ceased performing circumcision. And perhaps the reason for that is because the Egyptians themselves practice circumcision. But as we have already seen, this practice for Egypt or for Israel goes back before their time in Egypt. And then when the first generation that came out of Egypt went to Mount Sinai, before they could receive the law, Moses had to circumcise them. But of course we know that generation of Israelites had rebelled against the Lord. They had gone against what he had said at Kadesh Barnea, and that resulted in their deaths in the desert. Now, we're not really sure why Israel didn't circumcise their sons, but the fact is that they didn't while they were in the wilderness. Now, I look at this and I think it would have made sense that they should circumcise them and then cross the river as they go into this hostile land. But, you know, sometimes God's ways are not our ways. And so God instead asked Joshua to, the, to do the unthinkable. He had Joshua stop his army and incapacitate every single fighting man while they were camped in the shadows of enemy walls. Why did God have them do this? Circumcision is a visible sign of their commitment to the Lord. It proclaimed a national distinctive. It said, we are different and we belong to God. Now, as I mentioned, Israel was not the only nation that practiced circumcision. I already mentioned Egypt, but the prophet Jeremiah also tells us that Edom, Ammon, Moab, and other nations practiced physical circumcision. But there was supposed to be a major difference for Israel. These other nations were uncircumcised in their hearts, though they were physically circumcised, but Israel's physical act was supposed to be a physical expression of an inward commitment. Think of it this way. Every branch of the U.S. military has their own uniform, but we all wear the same patch on our shoulder. We all have the American flag on our shoulder. But the uniform tells you which branch that person is serving in. 
Further than that, different units have different patches, and I've got a couple of them up here. Because, for instance, with my own time of service, I started off wearing the Thunderbird patch for the 45th Division. And then my unit, 1245, went to a partnership with the 1st Cavalry Division. So we went from the Thunderbird patch to the Horsehead patch. There was a lot of us that weren't very happy with that. We were pretty proud of our 45th Thunderbirds. So, but we had to switch them out. Now, I did later transfer to another unit and got to put my 45th Thunderbird back on. I was pretty happy with that. But before Israel could attack, they had to be properly identified. They had to wear the right uniform. They had to put on the right patch. And the right patch for them was the circumcision of their fighting men. So God specified that Joshua should take knives of flint. Well, why should they, why does that matter? Why is that detail of flint knives so important? During that time, flint knives were sharper. They held an edge longer than the metal tools of Joshua's day. They produced a narrower scar, fewer inflammatory cells than metal blades, and were less likely to cause infection. So this made it slightly better, but obviously circumcision is a very painful surgical procedure, and so the Israelite men needed time to recover from it. So Joshua and the people did what God commanded. In the shadow of Jericho's walls, he circumcised the men on the hill of foreskins. That's what uh, this actually translates to, Gebeath Ha'aralah. But because they obeyed what the Lord had commanded, he changed the name. And we see that in verse 9. The name was changed to Gilgal. Now, I talked a little bit about Gilgal last week. Gilgal sounds like the, the Hebrew word that means to roll. Because Israel obeyed God's instruction, he rolled away their disgrace. As Egypt and all the other nations watched Israel wandering through the wilderness after being miraculously de delivered, wandering around on a journey that should take a few days for 40 years, their disgrace was upon them. But because they were obedient, God rolled away their disgrace. Now, circumcision was a big deal for Israel, but the New Testament writers make it clear that this physical circumcision is not necessary for the Christian. What's more important to the New Testament writers, circumcision of the flesh or circumcision of the heart? The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and in Jesus you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So it's not a physical circumcision that we need. It's a spiritual circumcision, and that comes through Jesus. And for Christians, a new rite was established. The circumcision of the heart is not evidenced by a physical circumcision, but by the act of Christian baptism. Much like the original design for circumcision, baptism depicts a relationship that has already been established. It's a physical, observable act 
for everyone to see. It's a testimony, and it's a church ordinance. That means that the existing community of Christians recognizes in a baptismal candidate someone who has already evidenced being part of the family of God. They've already confessed Jesus is Lord. They've already believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And so as the family of God, we recognize people who have made that same decision. And through baptism, they, the local church, that's us, welcomes the new believer into our community. And much like baptism for us is a beginning point, it's not the end point. We don't just want to see people baptized. We want to see people become disciples. We want to see people join the church, not to just have their card and say, I'm a member of a church, but to be active, to be part of an active body of Christians who follow the Lord. In the same way, Israel's, Israel's circumcision was not the end point. It was the beginning point for them to observe another ordinance. Look at the following verses, 10 through 12. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So not only do the people of God need to wear the right patch, but they need to observe the right traditions. Observe the right traditions. Back in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 5, Israel was explicitly commanded to celebrate the Passover whenever they entered into the promised land. Passover commemorates God's deliverance of Israel from the people of Egypt. Such remembrance would strengthen Israel as they prepared to go and conquer this land. It would strengthen their faith as they remembered what God had done for their forefathers. And they would trust God to work in their possession of this new land. But... There was a requirement. Before the Israelites could partake in Passover observance, they had to be circumcised. So the law made it clear that no uncircumcised male could take the Passover. Only those who had committed to the Lord, only those who had identified with the nation of Israel could partake. So the law was clear. No foreigner can partake of Passover. But every Israelite is to partake. So all were to remember what God had done for Israel. And by partaking in this act, this new generation also inherited the covenantal promises that God had given their fathers. They received the blessing that the earlier generation had received when they departed from Egypt. They were supposed to observe this every year. But this is only the third time we have recorded in scriptures Israel observed the Passover over the past 40 years. So for those same 40 years, Israel had lived off of manna. Think about this. The generation that was coming in to Canaan, the only food that they have ever known is manna and quail. Can you imagine 40 years? The only food you know 
And then they come into the land of Canaan. And following the Passover, it says the Israelites observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread as prescribed by the law. The basic crop of Canaan at the time that would ripen as they were coming in was barley. So they came in and they had barley, loaves of barley, for their meal. So they enjoyed the fruit of the new land as a token of that which was to come, the greater abundance that God would give them when the entire land was theirs. So God's provision, he's still providing for them, but his source of provision has changed. No longer are they going to receive the manna. It's gone. The land will sustain them. No longer are they in the wilderness. Now they are in their homeland. So they began a new life in a new land. How did they do it? By keeping the celebration of God's historic acts of redemption. Israel looked back to God's redemption of Israel from Egypt by observing the tradition of Passover. But many years after this story, Jesus, the new Joshua, observed a Passover meal with his friends, his disciples. And he made them into a new people of God under a new covenant. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, Jesus told them this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And indeed, he gave his body to be broken for us. And his blood was emptied out for us on a Roman cross. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. And the reason he was laid in a borrowed tomb was because three days later, he arose from the dead. He is the victor over death. And through his death and his resurrection, he gives to all of us, anyone who believes in the redemption of our sins through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus, and he calls us together as his people, as his church, to remember this act and to do so in a specific way. We do so in the observance of an, ord of an ordinance that he gave us. Some call it the Eucharist. Some call it communion. As Baptists, we generally call it the Lord's Supper. It's only meaningful. It's only meaningful for those who have already professed faith in Christ and have already made the right identification with Christ and his church by being baptized. So therefore, it should be limited at a minimum to a baptized believer. So we must have the right identifier we must have the right patch, the, the right jersey, whatever illustration you want to use for that. We also have to observe the traditions that the Lord has given us, the right traditions. There's one more thing we see here in chapter 5. Look with me, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? 
He said, no. That's an interesting response. Are you for this one? Are you for this one? No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Not only do we have to wear the right patch, not only do we have to follow the right traditions, but the people of God follow the right commander. Imagine, Coach Battershell, imagine a basketball player getting all ready to play. He's got his shoes laced tight, he's got his shorts and his jersey on, he's got his sweatband in place. He's ready to go. He warms up. He never misses a shot. Thinking, man, ready to get this guy out there. But he doesn't listen to his coach. He doesn't do what his coach says. Is that player ready to play? No. What's he going to do if he doesn't listen to his coach? He's going to ride the bench, right? So before Joshua or Israel could attack Jericho, they had to remember their real commander. So as Joshua was looking toward Jericho, he saw this warrior with a sword in his hand. And Joshua's question of this man is a, a natural human reaction. Is this man for us or is he against us? And the man says, no, I'm neither. Rather, he says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here because some take this to be a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus, what we call a Christophany. And I spent a lot of time this week studying this, and I don't think that's the correct interpretation. See, in the Old Testament usage, the commander was the supreme military authority, but he was still subordinate to someone. He was always subordinate to a king. In nearly every case, the commander's name is found associated only with the king's name. For instance, Joab is associated with King David. The structure that we see in the text is the same. This unknown man is an authority figure, yet there is one superior to him. In this case, the king that we're speaking of is the king of king and the lord of lords. It's God himself. So I don't think this is a Christophany. In fact, I think this is an angelic being, much like the one that Balaam's donkey saw earlier in the Pentateuch. A man with the sword drawn. So here's the point. He is some sort of heavenly being that's there on the Lord's behalf to do the Lord's bidding. He's a representative of God. And the part of that, part of his job, part of the Lord's bidding that he was doing was to get Joshua's mindset correctly. Joshua said, are you for us or are you against us? 
And this is the way we often approach God. We talk about God being on our side, but I think that's the wrong perspective. That's not the real question we need to be asking. The real question is, are we on the Lord's side? The commander puts everything in proper perspective. He says, this is not your war, Joshua. This is not your campaign. It's God's war. God did not come to fight for Joshua, but to take charge of his campaign. And notice how Joshua responds. He bows down and worships. The command to remove his sandals reminds us of God's encounter with, with Moses at the burning bush. So God appeared here to Joshua to encourage him, to provide him with instructions on what to do, but most importantly to remind him of where he stood. We need to have a mindset like Joshua. We need to be seeking the Lord, but we don't need to be seeking for God to do what we want him to do. We need to be seeking for God to be with us. We need to seek to be with God. We need to follow where God leads us. He is our leader. We need to worship him before warring. We need to bow before him before battling. We need to submit to him before serving. Remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus goes into his friend's house and there's a couple of sisters there. One's name's Mary, one's name's Martha. Martha's going, she's busy, she's doing all this stuff to get prepared and you know, serve the Lord. She's serving the Lord, right? She's serving Jesus. And she gets mad. Why? Her sister Mary is sitting in here at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. So Martha goes to Jesus and says, why don't you tell her to come help me? And what does Jesus tell her? Mary is doing the right thing. She is seeking the Lord. We need to learn the same lesson. We need to sit at the Lord's feet. We need to sit and seek him in prayer. We need to follow him and serve him and not get that order backwards. We need to pray, Lord, help us to follow you, and not, Lord, bless our church. Do we want God to bless our church? Yes. But the way we go about that is if we are faithful to him, he will be faithful to bless us. He is our commander, so we must ask, are we on the Lord's side? Israel had to stop. Before they went into battle, they had to stop. They had to make sure they were spiritually prepared for the physical battles that lay before them. Now, we're not in a physical battle. At least, I don't think we are. But we must remember that we are in a spiritual battle. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Lord redeems us. The Lord enables us by His Spirit to carry out His divine purpose, His mission. He is our warrior captain, and He grants us an overcoming power. We must make sure that we are with we must make sure that we are wearing the right patch. We must make sure that we are on his team. 
And if you're here today and you are not wearing the right patch, you have not joined his team, you can join him today by trusting in his son Jesus Christ and his, what he accomplished for us on the cross and by the power of his resurrection. He atoned for every one of our sin when he died upon the cross. If you haven't made a decision to follow him, would you do so today? For the rest of us, here's the question. Are you following his commandments? Are you spending time in his word daily? Are you seeking to follow him in every moment of every day? Are you surrendering to him? And if not, as we have this time of response in just a moment, I want you to take some time. Turn to him. Confess your sin to him and surrender everything you've got. As we have this time of invitation, would you stand with me as we pray? Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.